0: It's March thirteenth, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you as always from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. In this edition of the NACOcast, a distinguished guest, the composer Oliver Newson. One of the foremost composers of our time, Oliver Newson, occupies a respected place in concert and opera programs all over the world. Works like his Third Symphony, his opera Where the Wild Things Are, and his Violin Concerto are among the most frequently performed British works of recent times. And in addition to his composing legacy, Mr. Newson is an acclaimed conductor, with a regular presence on the podium of many of the world's great orchestras. Indeed, the force of his musical presence makes him one of the most influential figures in contemporary music today. Oliver Newson is here in Ottawa to conduct two programs, including his own music and works of Schoenberg, Magnus Lindbergh, Luigi Dallapiccola, Piccola, and Ottorino Respighi, of all things. So, Ollie, what is Respighi doing on this list?
1: Um, well, first of all, I wasn't entirely sure... At the beginning, or clear that it was supposed to be a modern music concert. I have to say, Um, and in any case, I don't like, don't terribly like what what we call ghetto concerts, where you stick all the all the new stuff together. So, I tend towards uh, a more kind of a integrated thing. So, uh, approach anyway. This is a not very often played piece. And it is a 20th century piece, and it's approximately contemporary with the Schoenberg. And uh, like the first piece of mine on the programme, the two organa, it has a a fair amount of connections with old music. And um, it's by a composer from the same country as Dalla Piccola and from the generation before. (coughs) So I suppose you can justify its presence on historical grounds.
0: I heard you making some rather wry and deprecating remarks about the work during rehearsals. One of my violin colleagues said, oh, well, you know, Ollie has to say that about
1: this music. <laughs> but in fact, I, you must love it or you wouldn't have programmed it. Uh, th- this piece, first of all, it's when you first hear it, you think, oh, how nice and how decorative. It's, it's illustrative pieces.
0: I should just say we're talking about his Botticelli triptych.
1: triptych. I was going to say, it's a, it's a it's three illustrative pieces in the manner of his, you know, Fountains of Rome and Pines of Rome, and he, of three of the most famous paintings of Botticelli, which is the uh, 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 Spring La Primavera, the Adoration of the of the Magi, and the um, the Birth of Venus, and this all sounds very nice and uh, decorative and lovely until you suddenly realise that. Hang on! Why is it sounding a lot like Vivaldi? What the Dickens has Vivaldi got to do with Botticelli? Which is, of course, nothing. Um, and uh, how can you put it? It's there's a sort of a f- false historicism about it, which is it's it's like I said, it's actually rather surrealistic. You've got sort of medieval, what sounds like medieval Italian melodies like in the in the slow movement you've got you've got this sort of vivaldi noise from the violins you've got uh, uh, things that sound as a friend of mine said like lawrence of arabia in some other respects coming across the thing and it's it's quite irresistible and i think the last movement the birth of venus is actually a little masterpiece um it's it really does sound it's a very uh, grand but light evocation of venus being born ashore on a clamshell and it's just just sweeps it sweeps you away it's wonderful so I'm prepared to put up with some of the other kitsch, kitschy aspects of it for that <laughs> movement, really. A little
0: too decorative, some of the earlier part, huh? Oh, yes. Yes, it does remind us of Maurice Yard's music to uh, Lawrence of yes. doesn't it?
1: Yes, uh, amongst w- other things. But when, other you, things.
0: when you say that um, that the music of Vivaldi has nothing to do with the uh, with the work of Botticelli, Botticelli. Uh, would you have the same kind of criticism, say, about Stravinsky's
1: uh, Pulcinella? Um... Well, that was a job. <laughs> I mean, Diaghilev wanted a ballet based on, 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 the, on the Commedia dell'arte figures and handed Stravinsky a bunch of Pergolesi uh, 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 keyboard pieces, I guess, or what was supposed to be by Pergolesi then. It may be that this is a response to that sort of thing too. Which of those two works do
0: you admire most or have the least trouble with?
1: I admire Paul Cinella very much. Uh, but there's nothing in Pucciniella for which I have a soft spot like I have for the Birth of Venus. Okay, I mean, it's a different kind of it's a different kind of thing. I mean, it's like uh, uh, somebody somebody who likes um, a Beethoven Symphony and a Beatles song. Uh, which one do you like the, the the best? You know, they're both very good at what they are. Yeah. Um, I suppose the main thing that would have the, the, the sort of Vivaldi thing came out of is simply the the, the idea of the seasons and the the. Um, a musical evocation of spring i suppose that, that, that for an italian it must be irresistible the vivaldi four seasons as a
0: but i reference. i've got to force you to admit that the orchestration is marvelous
1: the orchestration is out of this world as is as indeed is is all of respighi's orchestral writing and i mean i've done the fountains of rome many times um it's a piece i adore and will stand up and fight for if somebody calls that kitsch because it's it's so good and uh, I like the – I mean I adored the other Roman pieces when I was a kid and I think this is a composer who has been um, unjustly maligned if indeed he's taken to, uh, into account at all because he simply sounds so nice <laughs> so there can't be any problem with it. It's funny that last night I was around at somebody's house with a composer friend and on the radio was a bit of Rosenkavalier and my composer friend Mark Nykrug and I were saying that the the thing is with Strauss is you you just want to give up. Uh, You know, it just sounds so marvellous and there's no uh, there's no tension between there's no struggle between the idea and the realisation of the idea. And it's someone with just so much talent that you you, that you just sort of... You feel like a pea next to it. And um, that's probably why it's aroused such ire. And while I wouldn't put Respighi on the same level as Strauss, I think the problem is, is of, of the same ilk. Um, there's not that many people who can... Uh, I mean... The whole business of making an orchestra sound wonderful first of all that the orchestra is a is a, a you know wonderful organism and it's grown with the repertory over several hundred years and it's capable of many things but i mean we've all heard pieces where it just sounds it sounds rotten and people trying to write an orchestral piece for the first time where it doesn't work and um there is a very much a place in my mind a very very important place in my mind for these people who put the the writing of orchestral music and the the um uh refinement of 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 the use of of uh, timbre and all that on a very very high level um it's that's very important to me and it's uh, even if it's not the most uh analyzable Attribute
0: Ollie, you said And I quote There are a lot of things that audiences find very difficult Mm -hmm. From the second Viennese school Right Mm -hmm. up to Stockhausen Mm -hmm. And a lot of lessons to be learned from that music That shouldn't be chucked out He went on to say That the richest tome music Being written today is by composers With the most sophisticated awareness Of what preceded them Mm -hmm. Are composers today trying to build bridges back to the audience which they've lost and how are they doing it?
1: Well, I think it's – in the best cases, it's it's a natural process. I mean, I think what happened really was that there was a a development up to and beyond the Second World War in which music became more chromatic and more uh, broken. The language really became broken and after the second world war of course there was this uh attempt to in europe to build a new musical language absolutely from scratch without any associations of uh, you know <laughs> of the music that came before that which really mel- meant building things up pretty much by mechanical means and there was a similarly rational movement here and those there are pieces of music that come out of that movement, which are astonishing. Especially when you consider that the um, the history of the of the musical language being used is only you know fifteen twenty years old. Really, the pieces like the Gruppen for three orchestras of Stockhausen, which is um, apart from being a, an amazing feat of, of having three orchestral groups surrounding the audience with three conductors. Um juggling at different tempos um is a tremendously exciting experience i think for any audience i can 't imagine even as on the level of theater that any audience wouldn't respond to that um the uh, the uh uh pli salon of Boulez uh is a very beautiful piece i mean you 'd have to you might not like it, but you'd have to respond to just the, the elegance and beauty of the thing. Also, I mean, these are big pieces; they're not small things. Um, and my problem is that if you take the generation of composers, especially on the American continent, let's say broadly of the generation between David Dalltrydici, who's the big one of the big uh, neo-tonal composers and John Adams, who's another one. Um, now, those are both people who know very, very well what came before them and have uh, uh, more than dabbled with it. They engaged with it. And they went in a different direction. And um, I guess I have a, I maybe I'm a... Maybe I'm just uptight. I don't think you should decide, I am going to build bridges with an audience. I think that you should, I mean, unless it's a specific audience that you're writing for, like a, a, you know, I don't know, theater audience or a movie audience or something like that. I think that changes in musical language should come out of what you need to say or what you need to express or the the, the times in which one lives and um, I don't feel that in many cases that the, uh, the what you might call more easy listening kind of music that is prevalent today is, a, is really a genuine reflection of, of, of our world. Or a, or a genuine reflection of people's feelings. I find there's a lot of opportunism around. Now, there was a lot of opportunism around before. I mean, people do tend to jump on bandwagons. Um, uh, I've never really felt the need to do that uh, myself. Uh, the, uh, you might say uh, corresponding changes have come about in my music between let's say, uh, 25, 30 years ago and now, but that's not because I made a conscious decision I'm going to go tonal or I'm going to go consonant uh, or what have you. It's it's because um, the language that one was using has broadened over the years very, very gradually, and you see what was this isolated, as I say, post-war phenomenon or around the wars phenomenon, between the wars phenomenon, ...becoming part of a much bigger historical picture. And uh, I do feel that, uh, I mean, when you come down to it, music is capable of saying amazing things. It's um, it's capable of saying things, uh, very profound things, and uh, it can be very playful, it can be very philosophical... And and it doesn't spell these things out in words. Um, and I think depending on what the piece is that you want to write and what you want to say, the piece will tell you what the language is. Um, now, the, for example, the piece by Schoenberg that we're writing is an interesting case in point because it's a very strict 12-tone piece. It was written near the, uh, in the first decade of him inventing the 12-tone system. You can you can take it apart in that uh, uh, in that manner, you, you, and put it back together again, and it all makes sense, and all the all the numbers add up, and all that sort of thing. All the rows add up. But he, what he was doing was trying to write a spooky piece uh, about a, 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 an imaginary movie scene which is called Fear, Threatening, Danger and Catastrophe. So he knew perfectly well. I mean, it's, a, it's not, a, a, you know, one doesn't have to be a genius to work out from that that. He knew perfectly well what the psychological effect was of the music that he was writing and that he could use a similar but subtly different type of musical language, let's say a couple of years later, to write Moses and Aaron. And uh, with all the you know dances around the golden calf and stuff like that, he was very acutely aware of of music as an expressive language. And he, but he was using, he was trying to um, make his chosen material do different expressive things. Now, if you take another piece on this program, the the piece by Dalla Piccola, which is an equally strict twelve tone piece. Um, It's beautiful. It's consonant. It's it's atmospheric. It's also a little spooky. But it's about a sort of nighttime walk through a deserted square in somewhere, some deserted Tuscan village. One imagines. Um, He's using the same language as as Schoenberg for for very very different expressive uh, 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 effects. And I think this demonstrates as well as anything I can think of that you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are, there are infinite numbers of ways of combining technique and expression or using an infinite number of techniques to use to get precisely the expression you want and depending on whether you're the kind of composer who responds, as did Stravinsky, for example or as did Mozart for another example, to to, to rules, to being um, you know, to working in a very disciplined way. Or whether you are a more strauss uh, Straussy kind of uh, person who who simply sits down and writes, you get the feeling there wasn't that much forethought. Um, and there's an enormous amount of of, of very acute uh, uh, instinct at work um, in, in, let's say, in, in, in Strauss's actual composition. Whether you, whichever type of composer you are, one shouldn't reject a whole a, a whole movement of music that was thought up uh, to misquote Allen Ginsberg by the best minds of the generation, uh, just because it doesn't happen to correspond to the to the music you want to hear that morning.
0: Does well, that answer
1: your question it, it in about does.
0: 20 minutes? <laughs> it does. And I, let, me, let me just change the question around to, <laughs> strictly to the audience perspective. Hmm. You mentioned Stravinsky again. Stravinsky said this, To listen is an effort, and just to hear is no merit. A duck hears also. Mm-hmm. So what I want to ask you, has it always taken effort for audiences to listen to the music of their contemporary composers, going back 400 years? Has it always been difficult?
1: It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I find Bach hard to listen to. I don't know what Bach's audience or Bach's congregation felt at the time. I find Bach very difficult to listen to. Um, Well, we have
0: lots of evidence from many great composers from critics of their time to know that many of them struggled with, at least
1: with their critics, if not
0: their audiences. I
1: mean, the most extraordinary one for me is when you read the reviews of the Brahms Second Symphony, which is... We, you know one of the half dozen most euphonious pieces of music i've ever, ever dreamed up by a human being and that it was you know ugly and contrived and God knows what i mean I suppose it's i suppose I lost that fear of familiar of 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 unfamiliar of hearing something unfamiliar and uh, uh, responding to it on its own terms such a long time ago that I've forgotten what it's like but I think that's the key. You have to... The terms that the composer may be talking to you in are not necessarily the terms with which you're familiar. And you have to you have to simply open yourself up and put yourself on his wavelength a little bit and hope that he's prepared to come a little bit towards yours in return. Mm-hmm. But it's a two-way thing. I mean, by which I mean... I think only poor composers would would try to be, um, if I can actually know this word that's just come into my head, obfuscatory. <laughs> I mean, only... only I, I think no composer wants to be uh, uh, obscure. Uh, no real composer wants to be obscure. He, there, but, uh, there's no point. The music is about communication. You want to get your message across... As clearly as possible. Um, sometimes what you have to say is very complex, and um, especially in those cases, you one has to aim for a clarity of thought in articulating those complex things. I mean, why they're complex or why they're simple—that's a different matter. I mean, that's just that's just human nature. I mean, things that I I feel very often that I don't choose uh, what my pieces are. I mean, I don't choose what... The, I do choose, of course, because, you know, somebody asks me to do this and I say yes or no. But the characters of the pieces feel very much like they're being dictated to me rather than me telling them what I want them to be. And that makes it quite difficult because sometimes the piece tells you, you it wants to be something that you don't know how to write yet. And the process of writing is the process of learning how to write that piece. And it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's obsolete by the time you finish. finished it.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about you for, mm-hmm. for, for, for a bit here. You're very well known for being notoriously slow in composing. Now, some people say you have some of uh, Alban Berg's rigorous uh, sense of structure, mm. and uh, you probably got something of Ravel's uh, penchant for the meticulous, mm-hmm. miniature, what kind of constraints do you put upon yourself? I mean, are they arbitrary constraints? Are they necessary to, for you to find precision in um, the execution of your composition?
1: Well, first of all, it's a, it's a practical thing. I mean, I, uh, because I don't produce an enormous amount uh, and because of the way the world is, I do not make a, a, a viable living from my composition and I need to do something else to make a living and what I do is to conduct and uh, conducting especially if you do it uh, on in the guest conducting world takes up quite a lot of time and uh, so I I have a limited amount of time in which I can actually write Um, all I can tell you is that when the gears are engaging which happens from time to time. Uh, I actually write r- remarkably quickly. Um, I suspect this is because on my travels, I do a lot of mental work, possibly even subconscious mental work, and I do keep notebooks so that when I when I get home and I've got, let's say, five or six weeks, it, it is perfectly possible for me to come out with uh, with with a you know, a, a, a finished piece. Well, they say that r- real
0: composers think about their work yeah. all the time. Yes. yes and even that. if you're
1: not maybe conscious of the
0: facts, when you come come back to it, you, you finally have figured out subconsciously what to do. Is that yes. the, that's the way your mind works? I think
1: that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you you need to be very clear um, on the um, on what you think the piece is about. And there's a lot of other stuff that comes up while you're writing that you didn't anticipate, which your subconscious sorts out. Um, uh, now, the, now the composers that you mentioned, Berg and Ravel, are composers who I feel very close to, indeed. And um, I don't think you would find also that the actual process of composition in the case of Berg was tremendously slow. I think that again he thought and he procrastinated and and did other things and you know taught and goodness knows what. But if you look at um, I mean, I know the last couple of the last four years of his life, all he wrote was uh, five years was Lulu and the Violin Concerto, and you, Lulu. When you think about it, in five years, is a piece of uh, three and a half hours. That's a lot of music, even for five years. And the Violin Concerto was written in six weeks. <laughs> so it's it's and and he was written in six weeks because he actually needed the money. I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of. um practical considerations involved in these things i would dearly love to be a composer now especially now i'm in my mid-50s and you know the time is finite uh i would dearly love to be somebody who could produce three or four pieces a year um, um well, well as I'm, as it is i'm somebody who produces one every two years or so um is it a question of time or inspiration or too high a level of self-criticism Mixture of all three. Um, I don't think I've got a too high level of self-criticism. I think I think my level of self-criticism is, is correct. Well, you <laughs> because actually, I, because I, only I know what garbage I write down and I'm not... <laughs> well,
0: I've got yet another quote from you. You said, I don't regard a high degree of self-scrutiny as anything less than necessary.
1: Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's uh, why... Waste people's time with something that you haven't that you haven't thought out. Yeah.
0: So uh, I want to return to Stravinsky. Yet another yes. quote from Stravinsky, who I've been reading a lot of lately. Yes. He
1: said that this is a great
0: quote. He says, "Just as appetite comes by eating, yes. So work brings inspiration. That's absolutely if, if inspi- and so If inspiration is not dis- is discernible yeah. at the beginning,
1: what inspires you? If inspiration is not discernible at the beginning, then what inspires me? Um." Why write if you have, if you're not inspired? In other words, why write? I suppose you could sit down and write some inventions, some contrapuntal inventions or something like that. But I'm not that kind of a girl. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I tend to be. Uh, I tend to have a lot of projects uh, or ideas floating around my head, which, because actually, I don't produce that, I don't finish that much. Um, I I select. You know, which is the next one to do. They sort of accumulate. And.
0: Ali, um in reading about your, the way you work, uh, you say that your music often begins with a very specific idea of the sound of one moment. That's right. Which is sort of like a musical photograph. That's
1: right. All right. Like a snapshot. Yeah.
0: And another thing that I found absolutely fascinating reading about you is that you said that you can't conceive of pitch in the abstract, Divorce from Timbre. That's absolutely true. Has that one. always been the case for you? Yes. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, the first
1: thing I ever wrote that I can remember um, uh, was a, a long melody for cellos and basses. And it was, in other words, the first time I actually, I think, I don't know, I've probably tried to scrawl on a piece of paper before, but the first time I actually sat down and said, I'm going to compose something, which is when I was, I don't know, eight or nine or something like that, it was already scored it was scored abominably but at least I, that that was it was already thought of in terms of instruments and um for me uh, a pitch is a concrete sound i'm not a good uh juggler of abstract i'm not a very abstract person i mean um uh show me a set of numbers and i go you know i go blind practically uh, I uh, I play with concrete sounds in my head, um, and and I do mean in my head. In the last several years, in the, in probably the last uh, decade or so, I've I've composed almost exclusively away from the keyboard, which I used to have to compose at the keyboard. Partly, my harmonic language has become a little more direct. That's yet another euphemism, I suppose, simpler. Um, uh, which makes it easier to do stuff in my head sometimes. Um, And also I've got an incredible aversion to working at the piano. I don't like banging notes out anymore. I've been doing that. Well,
0: there we were talking just pitch
1: and not not the timbre of what you're conceiving of. But on the other hand, there is that, what do you call it, the physical contact with the Uh, the sound, which Stravinsky used to like a great deal mm -hmm. of. Um, I like Stravinsky's thing about how does a composer, when he's asked... How does a composer know when he is a composer? And he says, when he's aware of an appetite that can only be satisfied by composing, <laughs> and which I think is a very beautiful definition. Yeah. And, um, I mean, all I know is that uh, whether I write a lot or whether I write a little, uh, if I don't think of myself as a composer, I feel like I don't exist as a person. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely part of my nature. Well, let
0: me, this leads me to a very interesting remark by someone who you admired very much, mm-hmm. Toru Takumitsu. Oh, yeah. And he once said, you don't plumb your depths to write a terribly self-expressive piece.
1: Did yeah. he say that or I, did I say that? Or did you say that? I think
0: I said that. Did you that. say that in, in regard to conversation about him? What Probably. Did, what does that mean? about? I mean, what <clears throat> is
1: self-expression? Is that what you're looking for? Or is it the expression of something more abstract? The trouble is with these things is like this, like what I'm saying now. They probably were said in interviews and I, <laughs> they weren't intended to be analyzed. Um, I think what I mean, mean to say is that I find it offensive somehow. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a prude um, to, for somebody to dish up their innermost feelings on a plate um, and say, you know, look at me and respond to me. Um, I would rather that the the expression that the feelings in the music came out as a, came out uh, as it were naturally that the, the composer was thinking simply of writing music, writing the music. I mean Tchaikovsky's a very interesting case in point because that's regarded as a you know the the ultimate. Uh, confessional kind of composer I don't agree at all I think he's a tremendously objective uh, composer who is constantly experimenting with form and constantly experimenting with with harmony and I mean he's a very original composer is Tchaikovsky and in in the course of of doing that These this unbelievable uh, spiritual life or, you know, psychological life comes through very, very powerfully. But if he decided to sit down and say, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to pour out my heart now, it probably would have been dreadful. That maybe makes sense and maybe doesn't make sense, but it's what I like to believe. And I think Stravinsky's another point, another case in point, because that's the, the reverse. That's somebody who says you know, music can express absolutely nothing at all, you know, except itself. I've never believed that. I've never believed that, and all you have to do is to listen to The Fairy's Kiss, yeah. or Fawn and Shepherdess, or, the, or uh, you know, the slow movement of the symphony in three movements, or Orpheus, and it's, he. there's a tremendous... Tenderness in Stravinsky, you know, as well as the orgiastic sort of bright, of springy side. There's a tremendous tenderness there, which comes out involuntarily. And I think, um, no, I think, uh, I think, being a composer ultimately is a matter of being familiar with what notes can do, and what uh, uh, what sounds can do, and becoming more and more. Um, uh, skilled and free in the, in the uses to which you put these things. And as a result of that, <clears throat> of this kind of um, rather high level of play, you might call it, various things come out. And that's one of the miracles of it. I don't like analysing it too much, but it's a bit... There's a there's an element of composition, the act of composition, which is a bit like the glass bead game. It's where certain moves represent many things, you know, and... Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that a harmonic progression can represent a harmonic progression or it can express a feeling or it can suggest what a character is thinking it, it, that it's that aspect of of a musical expression that interests me that it's the, it's the it's the it's the ambiguity of it all that it can suggest many things or it can suggest nothing you can just listen to it as a as a one as wonderful patterns
0: deadlines mm mm-hmm. you don't like working to deadlines
1: I hate it but I wouldn't if I didn't have them I would probably never start so
0: what are your deadlines right now what are you working on?
1: I think I need a double scotch to answer this. <laughs> I mean, I've got... Uh, there's one piece that should be finished in six weeks, which is a little piano concerto, which has gone much slower than I anticipated and perhaps will not be finished in six weeks. I don't know. And then I have... Um, in my... Uh, one of my one of my rooms at home, where I dump stuff, <clears throat> there are five completed movements that I wrote two or three years ago of a seven movement piece for the Cleveland Orchestra called Cleveland Pictures, Off
0: of the Art Institute.
1: Thing. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, I wrote those five movements very quickly in 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 three months, and. Then got got uh, hung up on on one of the other ones, and also decided that, <clears throat> also decided that I actually needed, uh, I, I wanted to stand back from them as a painter would, and 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 uh, wash their faces eventually. And let
0: things dry and see. And how let it things
1: looked. dry. And yeah. uh, what else have I got? And then I have there's a there's a cello concerto I want to write next year for the Finnish cellist Ansi Kartunen. Um, and, uh, that's been hanging around. A cello concert has been hanging around in my head for about, uh, 20 years. Um, so it's just a question of, 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 uh, you know, focusing in on, it's almost like these pieces in my head, they exist. It's just this horrible business of getting the damn things down on paper. Mm-hmm. And they're never as good when you get them down on paper as they are in your head. <laughs> They always seem that they're very good in your head.
0: Well, I'm sure they'll be wonderful and the <laughs> the world well, <laughs> the musical world is looking forward to having them. I want to thank you for taking time away from thinking about those deadlines mm. that come in and speaking to us today. It's been wonderful having you this weekend. It's a and pleasure. Thank you for coming on to our thank show. Thank you. I was Oliver Newson. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. And there you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. And you can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast.